Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Jazz Brixick is a spunky young woman from eastern Tennessee who was homeschooled. She developed an interest in labor activism after working as a dishwasher at Panera Bread, where she became familiar with her co-workers' struggles as low-paid frontline employees in harsh working conditions. Jazz is also smart, having been awarded a Rhodes Scholarship in college. In 2021, she was working as a Starbucks barista in Buffalo, New York, where she successfully organized her co-workers to vote for a union, the first Starbucks to unionize. Now, a year and a half later, there are 300. Spunky, smart, jazz is also a salt, a person that gets a job in a workplace with the specific intent of organizing a union. Today, let's talk with a seasoned salt organizer that helped train jazz and many others that are reigniting the union movement in our country. Warm greetings, everybody. Uh, Greg and our friend of the show, two times on now, uh, Chris Townsend. So, Chris, welcome, welcome back. You've been oh, you've been busy guy, I think, huh? Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And just for those that don't know, Chris, he's a he's a, a union activist and organizer. He spent forty years with the uh, United. Uh, electrical workers and also amalgamated transit union. Uh, you are a union organizer and a expert on Foster. And so let's start with that. Let's talk about the new book, uh, which is which is called uh, Working Class Giant, The Life of William Z. Foster. And you wrote the introduction to that book. Tell me about that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks, Pat, and thanks, Greg, uh, for having me. I appreciate what you guys are doing uh, for the bigger and bigger audience out there for for what we're doing. Uh, the book is, um, it, it goes back to the last time I was here, which I looked it up, it was about a year ago, where I was talking about William Z. Foster's collected works, uh, American Trade Unionism, and uh, international publishers with... Uh, so the, you know, my cooperation relaunched that book, and it's been very, very popular. I think they told me it was in the top two or three sellers of international publishers. So that's something. It fills an interesting niche. So it, in my mind, it became a natural thing to push on international publishers to reprint uh, the Arthur Zipser biography of Foster, Working Class Giant. I don't have the new one, but I'll show the... Uh, this is the old one picture of Foster, working class giant, and uh, the new one has a much sexier uh, cover. And I think, as you said, Pat, I did a new forward for it. But this is the book that's, in some ways, a companion to American trade unionism. It talks about Foster as a person and what he went through, and uh, it just presents some different aspects of his life than what you'll get. Arthur Zipser was his last secretary. You know, Foster was uh, incredibly busy and had a lot of responsibilities, to put it mildly. So he had a secretary who took care of things. And uh, he was also a prolific law author. Right. Uh, you know, his collected works uh, are pretty much short little snippets of things. But he probably wrote 10 books. Uh, 
you know, that were really meticulously researched and uh, Zipser and the other secretaries of that. So we got it relaunched and it'll be interesting to see uh, the, uh, the reception that it gets. But I think I could say confidently that the, the interest in William Z. Foster and the interest in his concepts and how he functioned through the different uh, zigs and zags of his life, it, it continues to grow. And it's driven by this young, radical leftist uh, group that continues to grow as folks scatter in the industries. And it's wonderful to see this interest and see him uh, revive. Well, I read the original book when we when we um, chatted with you a year ago. And, you know, you get the feeling that it, to be in a union, according to Foster, is not just about increasing your wages, keeping up with wages. It's also education. It's collegiality. It's sense of community. And that uh, it, look, it looks like that book was used a lot uh, back in the 30s and 40s to help um, help with union organizing. And right. that gets us to the second uh part of this podcast, which is a very interesting article that was in Portside. I guess it was originally in a, in a Bloomberg business magazine. It's called Labor Organizers Behind, the, uh, Behind America's Union Wins, and it's about salting. And you were featured, you were featured prominently in this article specifically related to salting. I had no, no idea that, that this was this, well, I knew a little bit about this. I didn't realize how prominent this is. And, uh, you know, salting is a tactic involving getting people into a job or a specific workplace with the intent of helping to organize the people in that group. Tell me about, tell me about this. This is like almost undercover <laughs> spy stuff. Uh, how prominent was this in your union work and union organizing with Starbucks, Amazon, and so forth? Well, it's a, it's quite a project that we started. Um, I'm trying to think how to go at it so it fits together. Uh, I'll start with salting. Salting, I think in the article, it was a Bloomberg Business Week article about a school, an organizing school and a salting school that was started um and there's a short story to that. Uh, I was working at ATU as the organizing director, very successful and very busy. And I fell out in the middle of 2017. I fell out with two heart attacks, back-to-back -back heart attacks. Boom, oh God. boom. And uh, I crawled back to work. And Larry Hanley was the president at that time. And I crawled back to work. And uh, I said to Larry, I don't have the capacity to train people I, I'm doing too many things. I was running two departments. It was nuts. Very productive and very successful, but just I had reached my limit and I got sick. So he was very reasonable and decent human being. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, I want you to hire Richard Bensinger. Uh, he's been an organizer for, for um, going on 50 years, uh, involved in many different industries. He has had an interesting history. Always in his world, putting a premium on getting the results and not playing politics and not becoming a phenom. He's, he's probably the lesser known of the union organizers out there, but by far the most successful. So uh, Richard uh, joined uh, uh, the project to set up a training uh, school 
for ATU, and it evolved real quickly uh, through the very end of 2017 into uh, what we call the Inside Organizing School. We took the we took two routes that I don't think other folks would have. We were setting up originally an organizing school just for the Amalgamated Transit Union, but we ended up broadening it to include other unions. It turned out to be something that was very uh, unexpected for ATU. ATU is a union that lives in its own corner of things. It's not a very worldly union, unfortunately. And in any case, we broadened it by involving these other unions. But then I also just had one real demand that I was not gonna participate in this thing unless we had a left-wing organizing school. We don't need another church camp, social justice type thing. We don't need another community organizing, organizer, you know, set up. We don't need another super sensitive, touchy-feely type. No, we need a left-wing organizing school to talk about the realities of the class struggle and what we face as workers at this point in the United States and the damn difficult situation that we face. So that was why I uh, put the, or got uh, coaxed international publishers to put American trade unionism, William Z. Foster's book back into print because it's been and is the unofficial text for the organizing school to sort of animate not only the tactics, but the politics of the school. So in any case, we started up this school never being sure where it was going and it, it, it just took off. And it took off, maybe our timing was right, but it took off because of the real waves of younger leftist organizers that are coming and want to get busy and want to go out and do the work. So we did uh, not exclusively assaulting uh, program, but there was heavy on that. And I should explain salting, although in that Bloomberg article, it, uh, the author, Josh Idelson, he gave it some explanation as to where the salting motif came from i don't his explanation i had never heard but what i was always told was salting was as simple as what happens when you throw a handful of salt into a pot of water it boils a little more quickly that's really what it is you get some folks into a workplace to get it to boil a little faster and in any case the salting in my career i had been a salt in the 1980s uh on a couple different uh, projects. Uh, at that time, I was a member of the United Food and Commercial Workers. And in any case, I was familiar with salting. I was familiar with politically familiar with my own experience. It was one of those things that happened all around, not in a huge quantity, but it happened and it just was never recognized. It was never talked about. It does have some of those cryptic uh, uh, aspects, I guess, for folks that think that way. But in any case, uh, the school that we started began to experiment with the different unions and whatnot. Now, in my case, I used the support of the school to organize two transit garages in Washington, D.C. We organized 350 people, quite a significant uh, advance with a, a young salt who went in and uh, that was very successful. And there were other unions in the school. We had probably 10 unions that participated in this school. And uh, we had kind of an irregular schedule. Every couple months, we would run a class. 
And in any case, uh, the one campaign that emerged from that school that everyone has probably heard about is the Starbucks movement. And uh, this was really the uh, uh, the real labor of love of Richard Bensinger and a young woman, Jazz Brissack, who joined the school and others. And these were folks that initially in 2018, 2019, were organizing some very tiny coffee shops in upstate New York, two and three and four. You know, these are knockoff folks who uh, see the popularity of Starbucks and they'll fill that smaller niche. And they had great success organizing and getting first contracts. So then uh, it was Richard uh, Bensinger that wanted to take on Starbucks. I'll be honest, I initially thought, hmm, he's taking leave of his senses here. Uh, you know, I'm going to admit this. We should be honest with ourselves. And I, I was just thinking this is too big, too soon. But then I took a breath and I thought, well, I don't know a damn thing about the coffee business. I'm not in a daily interaction with the folks who work there, that young uh, cohort of young radicals and uh, free spirits. I'm not really, uh, well, I wasn't then. And I thought, I don't know that you can't do this. And this is an experimental school. So I thought, if this is the experiment that he wants to go with, uh, just how can I help? Chris, I want to stop you right there because I, I think you're, you're, not, you're not expressing how cool this is. <laughs> that I'll tell you what I, the article, after the article, there's a YouTube video, Secret Union Tactics Fueled Unprecedented Labor Wins. I, I'll link to it. It's a seven-minute uh, union thing. And it has the, the young lady jazz and the young man yeah. that you mentioned. So what is what happened is that you the unionizing of Starbucks, which there were hardly, there were no unions, what, year and a half ago. There are 300 now and a lot coming from this yeah. is specifically from your nurturing and engagement in getting these young people to come into these educational settings and teach them a little bit about foster and teach them of the process of how one organizes these people embed themselves they literally went in and got hired as baristas they got hired in the stores, worked their butts off, worked really, really hard, mm -hmm. and then slowly convinced the workers in these store in these stores to unionize and to do union votes. And that you had several dozen of these salts, these uh, undercover employees, are the reason why. Uh, Schultz, Howard Schultz, is just going nutty trying to stop yeah. this union movement. Am, it, am I exaggerating or is that? No, is... no, no, not at all. No, it's, uh, I'll, I'll just start by saying that the, the Starbucks company, very typical company of most business in the United States today, pathologically anti-union. Uh, the corporate management is larded up with an overwhelming majority of anti-union, anti-worker bigots. Uh, this is the way, you know, they're dictators. The workplace in the United States today, newsflash, is a dictatorship. Now, it may not be in the white collar crafts. It may not be in the professions. It may not be. But for the average blue collar and service sector worker, the workplace is a dictatorship. And as I say at the school, it's not just a dictatorship. It's a damn dictatorship. And you do what you what they tell you or else. 
And anyway, the, the reason that salting is so necessary and the reason why it is righteous is because really what we're expressing as trade unionists is we're, we're recognizing that the vast majority of workers in the United States, if they had an uncoerced chance to either join or not join a union, we know over and over and over again from polling and experience and whatnot, that the majority of workers, huge majority of workers would join a union if it were not for the fact that their employers terrorize them, hit them with poison gas, fire them by the thousands, terrorize them in all different ways if they tried. So this has led, as you guys are aware, to this sort of destruction of the workforce here in terms of its earning power, its future prospects and whatnot. That's another whole discussion. But in order to rekindle the trade union organizing waves, the trade unions are really in a bind. And so you find yourself in, as a 40 some odd year organizer, I can't tell you how many places that I've tried to organize where almost everybody there would, would gladly take a union and be able to move forward, but they're terrorized. They're you know, I have, I have a chart, Chris, America's approval of uh, unions that shows in 1965, it was 71% of Americans approved of unions. And today in 19 and 2022, it's a 68% of people yeah. approve unions. So you're absolutely right. It's not like people are anti-union. Three-fourths of the people are supportive of unions, but we had union membership a third of the workforce back in the 50s and 60s, and now it's down to 10% of the workforce. But could we, could we get to that? I mean, could we talk about that for a minute? <clears throat> Some of the big picture issues, I, I know... Uh, that Chris can fill in. People, I think, need to know what happened to the union movement. I mean, for for from the 30s through the 30s and the 40s, uh, uh, up until the end of the war, the union movement exploded in size, reached a point that it was as large or larger than almost any place in the in in, in the world. <clears throat> so in the early 50s, that started to turn around. I think our listeners need to know why. Why did that turn around? Why? we see a long, long-term secular decline in unionism in this country, and then how that's going to be turned back, why it is, and how it can be turned back. Maybe you could comment on that, Chris. It's a sure. big idea. Well, when I make the charge, or I say that the management, certainly the personnel departments of these corporations, it, 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 public and private both increasingly, it's worse and worse year upon year. When I make the charge that they're anti-union and anti-worker bigots, I should back that up. And of course, this is ultimately why we've gone down this road, because after the big upsurges of the 1930s and the 1940s, rather than the business powers that be and their political hirelings, rather than these folks sit down and say, okay, we've got to respect their human right to have representation, recognizing the completely impossible situation for one worker to challenge a boss by themselves and all. We've got to respect their right to organize, which happened in large parts of the world, uh, but not here. The employers here and the, their political front men have never accepted our existence. We have always been viewed, trade unionists have always been viewed as an alien force, an enemy force, 
something to be hemmed in, uh, reduced, or liquidated. And of course, the liquidation of the existing workforce starts with preventing the unions from being able to grow and renew and organize new members. And what has happened, uh, and it's, it, you know, we used to act like this was a, an unknown phenomenon, but anybody walking around today that doesn't understand that corporate America is fanatically anti-union isn't opening their eyes. I mean, this is just on display over and over and over again. And I think the moment that we're in today with this trade union uh, thinking spreading through the service trade, which heretofore had been largely untouched, as Pat pointed out, there was never a big wave of trade unionism through the service trades, but it's here now. And this is payback time for bosses who it's ruthlessly not squeezed people. Yeah, and it's not just Starbucks. It's REI, it's Google, it's Trader Joe's. Yeah, Apple, Amazon, parts of um, uh, um, what Activision Blizzard. That's parts of I think Microsoft uh, gaming. Yeah. So it's it's not just it, and this has all happened in the last couple of years. Maybe it's because of the pandemic yeah. and the yeah. labor increase in labor, or Gen Zs are finally getting excited about something. I, it's, it's, it's amazing how there is this wave of unionization. Yeah. And yet I don't think that we should just sit back and say, oh, this is wonderful because there is pushback. Like I have never, you know, from the corporate sector, uh, specifically the firm, uh, a little, um, um, Mendelssohn, the, the, yeah. the, the huge law firm that is fighting this fairly effectively when when you you turned me on to that barista and we had her on that were helped organize the uh, buffalo store. angel crimpa yeah and she, she's run. a sweetheart she was a great great young lady and i remember you saying that you know even though she is correct in her complaints against starbucks this will drag on this will drag on the 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 number of complaints just on Starbucks to the labor relations board is like 350 legitimate findings that they are not doing things correctly. Right. The closest thing we have to that is the Caterpillar strike, which had 400 complaints. That was over an eight-year period. This is over a one-year period. So Starbucks is not just going quietly in the night and allowing this to happen. They are remarkably aggressive in how they're trying to to, to quash this. Yeah. Yeah. Is that correct? Well, yes. And I, I would only say that what folks are now able to witness, because it's a fairly high-profile uh, affair, uh, and of course, you mentioned uh, Schultz, the outgoing CEO, the founder of the company, who went to Congress and made an ass out of himself. I mean, this is nothing new, but it's not most of the union smashing, most of the union busting that goes on as a daily uh, affair in the U.S. workplace is done. It's a not, you know, it happens in the nooks and crannies, and it's just there's no vehicle for these workers to really be seen or be heard. So now. The, the country is sort of having its nose rubbed in this, that this is the way a corporation that heretofore people might have liked, oh, I go to 
Starbucks and buy a coffee. It's pretty good. They love all, all of this. Well, now they see the real uh, operation, the real mechanics that go on behind the worker exploitation and the way that people are treated. And this just repeats wholesale throughout all industries. I, I venture to say I can't think of an industry uh, that this is not, uh, you know, the norm. And folks are seeing this. And of course, this goes to what Greg had raised. This is this monstrous, that's the word. This is a monstrous anti-union machinery. It is spy systems, physical. They pay people to go out and inform on union chatter and whatnot. Immense amounts of electronic surveillance, your email, your cell phone, your eavesdropping, your cameras in the workplace. I mean, you, you go into the workplace today, it's, it's science fiction. And the employers, of course, look at the union as a dangerous viral contagion. And they do it not just because of their political orientation to be anti-union and to be reactionary, but they know that the trade union movement is going to cost them a fortune because they're well aware of what they've been doing to people. And like, it's so, like, sort of the slave owner's worst fear to have a rebellion amongst the the shit upons, and here we are, and uh, they will spend money. Uh, I, I don't think that the numbers that you will hear mentioned, this corporation spent $10 million. No, this is a tiny fraction of what they spend because most of it is unknown, it's not reported, and it doesn't have to be. So, And I, I think that, well, last thing I'll say, Pat, that the, the most remarkable thing about Starbucks is the company has had a year and a half to refine and perfect all of their anti-union machinery, all of their anti-union uh, initiatives, yet the workers still every week vote to join the union. I just read this article an hour ago in preparation for this. It's called Not Your Father's Anti-Union Movement, 10 Key Facts About Starbucks Union Avoidance Law Firm, that little Mendelssohn. So they, they work in for Apple, and they're working for um, um, Starbucks. And here's a couple of things. I need you to clarify some of these things. So this is this is Schultz coming back to take over Starbucks and to and he began a aggressive anti-union movement. Starbucks algorithm reducing workers' hours and strictly enforcing availability policies makes it almost impossible for a barista to earn a living wage. And that was something he adopted in the campaign. So what what is that? How they uh, they make them come in on short notice? They make them they can't have another job. What 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 specifically is the algorithm that's used to that that Schultz brought in to kind of disrupt the baristas and their organizing? Yeah, in in my mind, guys, the the, the truly frightening aspect of what we're facing today uh, with the, what we refer to as the computer algorithms. Uh, you know, it, it is what it is. It's developed the computer capacity to analyze information and to spit out proposed uh, uh, ways to address different situations. As we know in corporate America, it's always been used to speed up and enhance production, uh, reduce work power, you know, speed people up and uh, enable the employer to capture more and more 
of the surplus value that these workers and all these different industries put together. Now, when you unleash, you know, the ever, I think folks may be aware, you know, the whole Ford Motor, Henry Ford uh, stopwatch system back in the 20s and 30s, they would time jobs and do things. It was a very early scientific approach to production. Well, now imagine that with mega computers studying every available aspect of the work. So the work is truly becoming stripped of any humanity. It's becoming reduced, and uh, this goes far beyond Starbucks. It's being it's being reduced to just sort of rote uh, repetition of formulas. And uh, of course, when they do this, when the employers do this, they don't just do it and take the money and go enjoy themselves. Yeah, they do all of that. But what they also do is they build into it a tremendous disciplinary regime so that if you don't follow these rules, if you don't meet these quotas, then you're going to be weeded out and there'll be somebody else to come in here and do it. So we've literally reached the age of just super scientific exploitation. And I think that the young workers, I think uh, you had mentioned, Pat, the pandemic. I, I credit the pandemic. Let's credit the pandemic for something. Uh, it showed, it enabled tens of thousands of employers here, maybe worldwide, to show their real colors. What did the boss really give a damn about when that pandemic came? And the Starbucks workers are a fine example of that. Workers by the tens of thousands saw that the employer was interested in making money, squeezing you out, speeding you up, pandemic or no. Uh, and, uh, you know, here we are. And I think that this rebellion, I refer to it as the Starbucks rebellion. And we, it, as you had pointed out, it's now spreading into dozens of name brand corporations. A lot of what I do in the course of a day and week is to work with folks scattered in many of these different companies to move it down the road, to work with the salts that are going in and to combat this and push back. And, you know, I, I should, I should circle back and say that, that this, vicious and almost psychotic anti-unionism that we deal with is what justifies the salting. Uh, you know, and we find, as we found in Starbucks, tens of thousands of people that work for that corporation that will join a union, but they were afraid to stick their neck out first. And I want to give a shout out to all these young people, and there are some not so young people, but it seems to be mostly a young phenomenon. These folks that will do this, and take these jobs and go into these, you know, first of all, you have to get hired, which is not as easy as it may sound, but they go into these workplaces and then they begin, the, you know, the really the painstaking drudge work of organizing workers, you know, clearing up their confusion, leading them. And an awful lot of what they have to do is inject into their coworkers the courage to confront these bosses who treat them like this. And every time you see one of these rebellions, Hundreds of them now in Starbucks, uh, a half dozen in Trader Joe's, REI, the companies that you mentioned, the high tech trades. Every single one of these rebellions is driven by some of the most courageous workers you could ever hope to meet because everyone knows that uh, what something every worker knows, you talk about a union in a non-union, unorganized workplace, and you're probably going to get fired. So we've seen... Countless firings, waves of firings in industry, many we haven't heard of. But so anyway, I guess the, the salting is justified. It's required almost. It's not ever going to take the place 
of the trade unions becoming far more serious about organizing. That's another issue, uh, the attitude of the unions. But it's it's something that we as leftists can do. Uh, and I'll say one thing, and then I'll, I'll come back to uh, to the union busting thing. Uh, I give a political talk at our organizing school, and I have done it at every session of the school, 15, 16 of these sessions that we've done since we started it. And I always remind people that Salting is not done by Republicans. You know, this is a newsflash to some folks. Salting is not done by Democrats. It's done by leftists. It's done by socialists, by communists, by radicals, militants, whatever label you want to put on it. This is the group that comes forward and has the guts and the courage to take on these employers. It is literally the salt thrown into the pot. And uh, if you waited for the Democratic Party to stimulate any of this, well, you can wait for millennia. Or the Republicans, they would liquidate all of us, throw us in jailhouse if they could get away with it. So really, it, it, when I had said in the beginning that I had made the absolute demand that this school of ours be a left-wing school along the lines of a foster-type, foster-esque type thinking, it really has been what has an animated an awful lot of the young people. Because again, these other forces they sit, they listen, they take it. We're the ones going in there to do this work. And of course, we are we didn't invent salting. Uh, this is nothing new. It's nothing that we've really discovered, uh, you know, other than people may, it may appear as in that article, it may look like somehow we discovered something. No, trade union movement has been doing this for since it started, because it has to. You know, the Chris, conditions are such. Before you came on, Greg and I were uh, looking at a, a couple of data sets, and one was the the labor unions in the midterm elections contributed sixty nine million dollars to politicians. Yeah, so that's the labor unions. Big business contributed one point six billion, and that's going not just to the Republicans; it's going to the Democrats, like you say. Right. Right. I, I don't know, Greg. What do you think? Do you think that we can ever? overcome the power of big business and their money and ability to buy politicians, uh, buy um, Supreme Court, <laughs> buy regulators. Uh, it, I, I mean, we're, we're not having- question, Not a question of, of, of uh, uh, will we? It's a question of can we? I mean, they're an obstacle to, uh, to doing that. It, I can't help but think about yesterday where a million workers in France were in the streets fighting the police uh, over trade union issues. And the obstacles in France are, are very profound and very deep as well for workers. But they've done that. And that's to me, is where the bar is. That's where the bar is set. How can we get the labor movement? Uh, how can we get workers organized in this country to get to that point? We can tackle things politically. Until we do, the Democrats don't care. I mean, they really don't. They don't care. Uh, they they come. They show up on Labor Day and they make speeches and they say we are with you, but they don't care and they don't do anything. But then it's also true of the organized labor movement, and they become an obstacle to to advancing too. I, most of these movements that you talked about, Chris, I trust are independent movements. They're not uh, like Amazon is an independent trade union. 
uh, apart from the well, it's, uh, it, Pat, uh, or Greg, it's it's mixed. Uh, there is uh, maybe uh, indulge me with an interruption. Uh, some, but only some, a select few of the established unions are sort of realizing this moment that we seem to be in or moving into. And some of these workers in several of those companies are starting their own unions. And we haven't seen a period of new union formation for decades. And this should be a real wake-up call to the, what we, what I used to call the union bigs, you know, these mostly white guys that sit in these unions and control everything. And they, you know, you guys may have heard me say the last time, this is the most financially wealthy labor movement in the history of the universe. Yet it sits on its ass and it does virtually nothing to organize the unorganized. Now, certain unions will howl and protest when I say that. But if you scrutinize their budget and look at what slice of it they actually spend organizing the unorganized, it's almost always a you know relatively small, if not minuscule, slice. And this is another thing that we can do as salts. We have the capacity here to stimulate some of these unions to get off their asses and confront these corporations and at least make an effort to grow. Because you guys know, you know, I joined the labor movement in 1979. The trade union movement represented 20% of the workforce. Today, we're less than 10%. So we're headed for 5%. Uh, another statistic, uh, I should say, I, I did an article for Labor Notes. You guys are familiar with Labor Notes. It's only in the print edition, but I did an article on salting in the current May uh, labor notes. And I set the stage for the justification for salting by saying, what is the crisis that we face? Well, we face a crisis of potential extinction in this labor movement. We've been extincted, extinct, uh, driven out, liquidated in whole sections of the economy. And uh, how long will that process continue until there's real some serious pushback? So the statistic that I thought surprised me, even when I looked it up, the number of NLRB, this would only cover private workforces, not rail or airline or not public sector, but the number of NLRB union elections like the Starbucks folks are having. When I joined in 1979, there were 1,000, like 1,780 uh, elections. Uh, no, let me let me get there. I'm I'm messing that up. 7,800. That's what I meant to say. 7,800 different union elections in 1979. During the pandemic year, it dipped below 1,000. It's now come back to what looks to be maybe 2,200. But think about that. It's been reduced humongously, so that we don't even have workers anymore with much of a chance to vote for the union. Uh, the number of elections don't even allow for it. Now, that's not just because workers are not interested in unions. It's because of this ferocious anti-union machinery that nips them in the bud, brushes them, prevents them from ever happening. And then the second piece, and this can be overwhelming, but I, I implore folks like us to just face the reality the, not only has the number of elections been dramatically reduced, but the size of the worker workplace that's voting in that election has dramatic. So the number of workers, not only the number of elections, but the number of workers. So we face, if, if you can't call this a crisis, you know, 
you're checked out. This is well, a the, the, the crisis is an old one, Chris, and you know it. You, yeah. You're a veteran of the Labor Party, uh, LPA, uh, Labor Party advocates, and yeah. that development. I was too. I was a delegate to the first uh, convention, and the promise has always been there. Is it a change when uh, uh, in, in in labor leadership from Meany? You know, every time it's heralded as a new dawn, the dumping of AFLD. That's a new dawn. But yeah. they never materialize. So here's my question for you right now. I mean, it's an immediate question. What about the UAW? There's changes afoot in the UAW. Do you find them to be promising? Do you think this could be a spur to changes in the labor movement that would be more profound and 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 make a new direction, make a new a new start, push things in a more militant way? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll start with a brief preface. Uh, my own frame of reference, I keep mentioning it, that's mine, 1979 when I joined up, uh, started really getting a, a real view of what labor was up to and what it was doing. Uh, when I joined in 1979, there were probably 60 or 70 manufacturing unions, 60 or 70 different manufacturing unions. At that point in time, the United Auto Workers had a million and a half members. Uh, and there were industry, you know, these, you know, well, if you looked at that same bushel basket of unions today, it's probably been reduced to 25 unions from 60 or 70. And the membership has been just slashed incredibly. Uh, a lot of the smaller unions have merged into the bigger ones. And uh, it's carnage. And what used to be the most pro-union sector in the country, manufacturing, in many ways is now the most uh, difficult to organize because of the ferocious repression that's visited on manufacturing workers if they try to unionize. So we find ourselves, you know, with the auto workers now having their new uh, leadership elected, we should start by first of all, applauding those workers that came forward to try to revive that union and were elected and now have to deal with decades of neglect and decade of class collaboration and and some who have followed it would know that it was uh, it was an election mandated by the federal government. Now, when you reach the point of such corruption that this is a government, of all governments, when this one tells you you have to run a democratic election, wow, you've got a problem in your hands. But they did. The workers responded. A new leadership has been elected. This is a chance. I am rooting for these folks. I have, you know, I work with them a little bit. It's a, it's a daunting task to try to take over a moribund union, uh, a reactionary union in many ways, and corrupt. It's, it's daunting to take that over and try to revitalize it and try to, you know, relaunch it. And I think all of us as the left have to just cheer this on. It's not going to be a perfect process, but it's uh, maybe a faster version of what we all lived through with the Teamsters, with, you know, the rotten elements having to be rooted out. And, uh, and look, let's not kid ourselves. This labor movement of ours, this business union labor movement of ours, not only is it the most financially wealthy in the history of the world, in many ways, our unions are the most undemocratic and out and out corrupt in, in pockets. It's not a, it's nothing we should deny. It's, it's something that's always been with us. Uh, you know, everything the boss says about us is a, a lie. Uh, and we have to go back to William Z. Foster, which is how do we work with the members of these unions to eject these misleaders? He wrote a whole book in the 1920s called Misleaders of Labor, 
Well, if we want to walk around and scrutinize some of these unions today, holy smokes, we've got plenty of misleadership going on for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different directions. And uh, again, another reason why I'm glad to see folks looking back to the problems that Foster had. The, the last thing I'll say, uh, Pat, I think you had mentioned uh, one of the books and one of the impressions you had. Uh, it, it, it's always interesting to me that since we've now got literally thousands of people out there with the book and many thousands more online and it's not like we had a corner around the market of uh, foster writings but uh, the most common uh, comment i get from young workers about foster is they'll raise their eyebrows and they'll say it's like nothing has changed in a hundred years I still have this problem with my union. The employers still operate the same way. The Democrats still leave us down. You know, the, it, it really is remarkable. That, 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 but it, in some ways, it's comforting to them that this is really just unfinished business. It's no nothing new or radical. It's nothing that fell to earth from outer space. This is just we have unfinished, unfinished business as a working class in this country. So, well, I I noticed that. Let's get back to Howard Schultz that um, his um, he spoke before the Congress and Bernie Ward, you know, kind of grilled him a little bit. But his his whole deal was I'm a I'm a billionaire, but I worked hard. I grew up in the projects. And why are you being mean to job creators? And it seems like that Starbucks has this special group of people that they hire if you go into a Starbucks, they're kind of the hipsters and, yeah. you know, they're purple hair and they, they, they kind of cut through that. I, they can kind of see through that. I think a lot better than, than many of the other um, uh, perhaps employment sectors. And when he said, if you just um, don't like working here, go somewhere else. And the baristas say, we like working here. We like our colleagues. We like the people we yeah. work with. We want a living wage. We don't want to have our schedule manipulated so that uh, if, uh, you know, that for the benefit, for your benefit, um, you know, we don't want to be fired if we're organizing because that's our right. It's, it's not Schultz's right, whether or not Starbucks has a union. It's, that's not his, that's not his decision. It's the workers that he's hired are the ones who who make this decision. Yeah. And and that's why I think you were, when I found out of how many salts you had in Starbucks and from going from none to several hundred and organizing all of the time, I, it just seemed like they were so correct in pushing back at this. Yeah. Pat, let me, let me bad just, guy. Yeah. Let me mention something uh, that anyone who's been around a union election will know this, but what's comical to me about salting is that there's no way to measure it. There's no way to identify if somebody is or isn't a salt. I mean, it's a somewhat murky thing. It's the nature of the workplace. It's the nature of the hiring process and all this. But what I find comical is that in any union drive, every union drive, the employer invariably public or private, will zero in on the more active union supporters and denounce them as some kind of a union plant. 
Now, you have to remember why this is the case. The employer cannot, cannot, and will not. This explains some of, of uh, Schultz. They cannot admit to themselves. They do not possess the capacity to be honest with themselves, that their workers would not just work for them, but not also love them and be loyal to them and believe the things that they believe. This is their ideology that is inflexible, and uh, it, it's unrealistic. It's preposterous in a lot of ways. But this is, uh, you know, anyone I was, uh, at any union drive I went through, some places I was a soft or deliberate guy that went in there, and other places I just needed a job. Well, if you tried to start a union, oh, Townsend's a union plant. He's being subsidized by them. He's being paid by them. He, has, he doesn't have your interests at heart. He's looking out for himself. Because again, all they can project is their own personal greed. A guy like or a guy like uh, Schultz gets up in the morning, can't conceive of doing something that's not strictly for his own benefit. It's a it's a mindset that they possess. And uh, you know, so the salting thing is quite interesting. I'm I, I've joked with folks, uh, you know, we've had congressional hearings. You, you saw the Sanders hearings. I commend Bernie, my conservative friend. I used to introduce him at UE events. He's a good man, but I always would tease him as my conservative friend. And uh, in any case, he did phenomenal work to bring light on this subject. I presume he'll do more as time goes on. But I'm wondering with the House now in the possession of the most reactionary end of the Republican Party, whether we will get what we have had before, which is hearings to investigate salting. You know, to get down there, you know, somebody's in, infiltrating, you know, we, we've had this before. We had it in the 90s. We had it in the 2000s. We'll see. If anybody hears about it, please give them my name and home address. I will volunteer to go down there and be a hostile witness because, uh, you know, th this is a preposterous, uh, you know, invasion of our rights, our basic human rights, you know. So uh, in any case, it's it's gratifying, though, to see Bernie and some others shine some light on this. And it's it's ugly. The workplace, uh, when I said previously, made the declaration that the U.S. workplace is a dictatorship. It is. And I have made that comment several thousand times in my career, including at these schools. Never one time has any worker come forward to say, well, you know, Chris, that's a little strong. My workplace is, well, you know, my, no, we get to vote on things. Never, never one time. And it's, uh, it's something that we should be mindful of, that this is really an unacceptable situation in its own right. So, Any, any final thoughts, Greg? Any? Well, it's always a pleasure to, 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 to talk to, 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 to Chris because of the enthusiasm and the, and the energy that he exhibits. Uh, uh, on these questions, and it's it's easy to become cynical, and and you're a good antidote to cynicism, because you see possibilities that are there. We have a long way to go. We have a long, long way to go, but these are all encouraging developments, and it's good that we have people chronicling that and and yeah. participating in that. So appreciate that, Chris. Pat, if I may respond to Greg and to you both, I I think. Uh, I have a punchline or cliche that I invented. I think I invented it at the end of just about all these conversations that I have with workers because it is, it's, it's daunting. You know, it takes tremendous fortitude for these workers to do what they're doing, uh, whether they're assault or not. Because obviously by the tens of thousands in the course of a year, we're dealing with indigenous workers who decide 
I'm for the union. Um, certainly only a fraction of the union elections are triggered by salts who've gone in. But I always will say to workers, if you are rich enough to give up, then you can go to the beach and we'll wish you well. But if you're like me, if you were never wealthy enough to give up, you're in here with the rest of us inmates in this wage slave setup that we have. And you don't have the luxury of giving up. If you give up, you'll go down the drain even further. And it's a very sobering kind of commentary for these folks. And uh, can we, with our school, with our salting, with all the work that's going on, can we turn it around? We don't know. But I will say to all of the listeners, the older, the younger, if you're not in a position to be in one of these workplaces or play an active role, you can still help. Help distribute the literature. Help support them. Uh, find out who they are and find out how you can counsel them. Boost morale. Just let them know that there is a wide strain of us out here on the left that really are rooting for them. And uh, I got the nickname from the school of being the morale officer. Uh, my okay. wife thought that it's one of the younger Starbucks folks got it from Starbucks or from a Star Trek or something. I don't know if it's true. But I just would always zero in. I, I do in the course of a week, I'll talk to usually several dozen workers. And an awful lot of it is just to say exactly what I said. If you were wealthy enough to give up, God bless you. But if you're like me and like 99.9% .9 of the rest of the working class, if this is your fate, this is your lot in life, it's the slave's duty to rebel. And do it and you will grow by leaps and bounds as a human being, as a leader, as a worker. And if you want to just submit, give up, smoke more pot, hide out, you know, it doesn't make them bad people. But that, but change doesn't come from that population. It comes from the Fosters of the world, the Jazz Brissacks of the world, these workers in these places. And uh, I, I'm, I couldn't be more optimistic in a lot of ways. The objective conditions are here for a trade union revival. The question is, can we do it? Uh, will we catch the support of some of the union leadership? I think we might be at this point. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting ride. So come along. It's yeah. good. Well, I, might, my, I think I've told this story before, but uh, after I graduated from college, one of the reasons I went into graduate school is that I worked a year as a union laborer uh, in Illinois. And... Um, and it was a tough, it was a tough job. I made $7 and 50 cents an hour, which is equivalent to um, over $50 an hour today, you know, just as a union laborer. Um, and the very first week that uh, I got my paycheck, the guy from the union came to collect his dues. <laughs> and he had a Cadillac and a scar. He looked like central casting, some guy that was, you know, the and he 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 came to get his cash. I can't remember how much it was. It was a pretty good chunk, though. Uh, and then he looked at me and he said, he gave me back some of the money. He says, you can't be wearing tennis shoes here. You need some steel-toed boots and I'll pay me back. I'll, I'll catch you later and pay me back. He gave me back money. So I was a <laughs> dumb college kid, didn't know squat. But, you know, they none of the people, none of the iron workers or the carpenters or the, you know, all the people on this construction site, they, they, they thought it was okay. You know, he, he looks after us. He takes care of us. He, he gets, gets us good contracts. Um, 
So there was a little kind of corruption back there, but I think it was a fairly good, a fairly good relationship. Uh, ultimately, well, remember, guys, problem. corruption. When I lodged the charge of corruption, it comes in many flavors. It comes in overt criminal type things, which I don't think really is a big problem anymore in the unions. But it's more of an ideological corruption, falling in love with the boss, feeling sorry for the boss. I mean, you look, you know, when you have a union, hopefully it will look out for you uh, and help you play your part in the class struggle and not actually join up with the employer and help, you know, make your life more miserable. So that's probably what we face today. But but it's also, you know, I, I'll maybe I'll, I'll wind down with this. Uh, if anybody looks at my Facebook page uh, at our last session of our school uh, about a month ago, month and six weeks ago, Sarah Nelson came from the flight attendants and she came early and she left late. And I thanked her. I've never seen a union leader come and actually participate in the entire proceedings, three days and nights. She wants to find out what's going on. She's an authentic leader. That alone convinced me of that. But I gave her a copy of Foster's book and she had never heard of him. I wasn't surprised she had never heard of him. How many of the rest of the labor union leadership have ever heard of this guy? And I think popularizing his works, the books, whatever else we can do is helpful. And I marked two chapters for her to read, uh, you know, when she stuck on the airline, uh, Carmack, uh, going someplace, uh, corruption and autocratic control in the unions. That's one chapter. And the other one was the question of the unorganized. If that's all she reads, her eyes will be open. Uh, so we'll have to hope for that. But I, I was, uh, that was also a sign of the growth of our school, uh, you know, or maybe the development of our school. And, uh, and, uh, you know, it was interesting to have a corporate media study our school. We had amongst our little collective, we had a discussion. I, I was kind of ambivalent about whether it was going to help or not. But, and, you know, I think the article was honest and reflected kind of the difficulties of what we were doing and whatnot. So I'll take it as take it as a good thing. So I'll link I'll link to thoughts. that I'll link to that Bloomberg article. That's what I I thought it was just fascinating. That um and um quite Yeah, and I I commend that outlet for at least examining this because you can only imagine. Uh I saw uh, there was a YouTube version of that that got posted in the like uh, of all the comments before they got turned off about 90% of them were positive. And there were like boss types and retirees, corporate types who were saying, hey, these young people, yeah, they've got to do something. It's, they have experiences with their own children, having stunted uh, lives uh, before them because of the way things you know, tilted against workers. And uh, I would really be glad to kind of, I, at some point, I'm going to call up the reporter, Josh Idelson, and just say, hey, what did you hear from people? Because I'm sure that a lot of these corporate types you know, were freaked out with the notion that, that 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 they would actually promote this as a legitimate behavior. We'll see, we'll see. But uh, it was it was good to get a little exposure on that. Richard Bensinger really was the one that uh, you know pulled the school in that direction. And, uh, have have uh, any any uh, other unions, uh, AFL CIO unions, come to you and said, "Can you?" expand this? Can you take this into some of our efforts? Have they reached out to you? Yeah, well, the, the participation from unions that we've had with our inside organizing school has been kind of ad hoc. Uh, sometimes it's a piece of a union. For instance, the reason that the Starbucks workers ended up in Workers United 
an affiliate of SEIU was because the upstate New York joint board of uh, the Rochester joint board of uh, Workers United is the union that was willing to work with the school when they were organizing the small coffee shops that then led to Starbucks. That, that uh, joint board should be commended. Uh, Gary Bonadonna is the head of that joint board and he should be commended for looking at this and saying, yeah, let's try, let's see if any of this, any of these approaches will help. Uh, we've had probably 15 name brand unions who've participated at least once. We've had several that have participated every time. And then now we're seeing these independent, unaffiliated uh, unions coming forward. And uh, that's a whole new energy coming into this. So, you know, we're, I, we, I laugh about this because, you know, the AFL-CIO, I guess I'll just pick on them, easy to do. Uh, where have they been lately? Uh, they've had an organizing initiative going on for several years, and it's, it's not even heard from yet that I can tell. Uh, you know, at the end of their convention a year ago, at least, they, Lee Schuler got up and said, we're going to have a transformational organizing initiative. You guys might remember this. We're going to organize 100,000 people a year and a million people to the next 10 years. I mean, you know, fine. You know, I'm glad she at least was thinking about this, but I'm unaware that their transformational initiative has transformed anything. I know they've hired staff and they're spending a lot of money. I know they raised the capital dues to the, I mean, I'm, I'm rooting for them, but they're not going to call me. They're not, they're not going to, I mean, they know me, uh, you know, they called me four years ago, but it's just, they're in a different world. I think a dying world, uh, you know, that's when I had made the comment in the beginning that we needed a class struggle organizing school and not another feel good social justice type, you know, let's sing and have folk music. No, the AFL is trapped in that that world and it's dying. It's being killed. It's not a bad world. They're good people, but it's just not going to come forward. We need a hard hitting, fighting class struggle you know, group coming out to initiate these rebellions and follow them through uh, to where they go. And it's going to be ugly and messy and there's going to be casualties and we're, we're certainly not going to win them all. But if we don't do this, and if we can't convince more and more folks to do this, you know, our fate is sealed. Chris, thank you. This is fun. You're always it's always fun chatting with you. I feel like yeah. Thank you guys, and I appreciate. We should be in a Starbucks. We should be in a Starbucks coffee shop and just make this a couple hour conversation. (laughs) It's a wonderful group of workers. I'll tell you, I I never had children, but uh, I I would take them all as my own. I mean, they really that they are so brave and together to take on this corporation that controls everything and has money galore. And they'll say, screw you, Mr. Schultz. I want to join a union because that's my right. And that's the way that I can exist here on the job. Why? What, what's not to like about that? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Fight, Thank, you. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Pat. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.